Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 Festival. Well, welcome everybody. Thank you for coming along. Another full house, which is great to see. I would like to start by acknowledging the uh, Gadigal uh, people of the Aurora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. So as to the format this morning, um, I'll be chatting, first of all, uh, live from Washington with uh, Joe Biden's biographer, uh, Evan Osnes. And then we'll throw forward here with a panel on the challenges that lie ahead with Bob Carr, former New South Wales Premier, former Foreign Minister and Professor Rosalind Dixon, Professor of Law at the University of New South Wales. But first, um, Evan has been a staff writer at, uh, at The New Yorker now for 13 years. He's won a national uh, book award. He's written extensively on Joe Biden and the latest, the biography, American Dreamer. Evan, welcome to the Sydney Writers' Festival. Thank you very much. It's a great thrill to be with you. I wish I was there in person. Um, I want to start with um, right up to date with the, uh, the Joe Biden speech to Congress uh, just concluded. Um, what do you think was the key message that, uh, that he wanted to get out after the first 100 days in office? You know, Barry, I think the message was that there is nothing short of democracy at stake here. And, and it's really worth painting it in terms as large as that. You know, sometimes a, a joint address to Congress is about a specific piece of legislation or it's about setting the table for re-election. In Joe Biden's mind, what is at stake here is the credibility of the American democracy. Because to be perfectly blunt, and I'll break news, um, people around the world may be wondering about the health of our democracy. And, uh, you know, as somebody who spent much of my career abroad before coming back, I sort of often am aware of how we look. And right now, our democracy is um, in need of serious deferred maintenance. And Joe Biden has essentially begun to talk about that in very clear terms. What you heard him say last night was, if we don't figure this out, if we don't demonstrate to our own people that they can expect that our system can deliver the goods they need for a thriving, stable, secure life, then they will lose touch. They will lose confidence. Lurking in the background of that, after all, to be blunt about it, was he was speaking in a chamber that had been, of course, under literal attack, physical attack, on January 6th. And then the second piece of the reason why democracy is at stake is that the United States over the next century is facing, in effect, a, a more explicit competition with China about whether or not the United States can still represent a democratic system that makes a credible claim in the world to be um, the rival to authoritarianism. And he put it in those terms. So that was the it was not a it was not an overly cheerful speech. And yet in its own way, it was a, a, a an optimistic speech because it laid out the, the stakes at hand. It does seem extraordinary that you have to almost begin now from the beginning and persuade the world that democracy is the way to go. But you, you had a president who for four years trashed some of the great pillars of democracy, you know, the media, the judiciary, even the, the election process itself. Um, so my question is, had it not been for COVID, had Donald Trump handled COVID like a grown-up, <laughs> if he'd handled it well, would he have been re-elected? It's a terrifying question, and I think a completely fair question. Uh, look, Barry, I, I, the numbers that he had going in, principally on the economy, were strong, relatively speaking, historically, 
they positioned him well for re-election. And I'm, I, I am not betraying any uh, journalistic objectivity to say that as a citizen and as a writer, I found that appalling, the idea that we were within a hair's breadth of the re-election of Donald Trump. Now, I will say, however, though, I think that one of the things that we've sort of come to see over the last few months and the events of January 6th, the violent insurrection at the Capitol sort of crystallized this, was that Donald Trump was this obviously an engine of his own chaos and disarray. And he exerted terrible forces around American society. But he was also a symptom of these deeper problems. And the fact that he even became possible, the fact that we even had to contend with him for four years was a fact was a reflection of these structural issues in American life. And those are the kinds of things now that if Biden wants to prevent the next Trump, you know, what we sometimes worry about is a competent Trump, one who actually could get reelected, then then that means addressing these underlying sources of alienation and disaffection. And that's a harder problem that gets to things like race income, the structure of the economy, and the nature of our policing system. And those are all the kinds of things he has before him now. That's one strategy. What's the political strategy, though, about avoiding the next Donald Trump or even avoiding a Trump comeback? What does Joe Biden do? Does he try to persuade enough Republicans that can't happen and perhaps try and educate Americans more to those dangers? You know, what's the, the challenge of it, Barry, is that we think that our intuition is to say, look, if we can sit down with people and explain to them that they were misled by a demagogue, that they were dragged down this you know, unhappy route for four years with false promises that he was going to make everything great again and so on, that maybe people would come around and, and kind of coalesce around the more recognizable form of the Republican Party. The reality is that's probably not what's going to happen. We've sort of learned from the social science and from practice over the last four years that the more that Democrats or you know, pointy-headed writers like me tell people you're wrong and you're, you're thinking about this the wrong way, the more they entrench. And the, the most powerful ingredient in American politics today is negative partisanship. It's this sort of, sort of strange satisfaction one gets from seeing their enemies angry at them. That's all the data bears that out. And so actually, the only way that you can really begin to steer the ship is, I will borrow the words of a very, there's a, a terrific uh, figure here, Reverend William Barber, who's a civil rights leader who I spoke to, he gave the 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 uh, the inaugural uh, faith service on a, the day or two after the inauguration. I spoke to him that week and I said, so what's the and he said, you know, he'd been talking to Biden for months. And what he said was that if you're going to try to heal the soul of the nation, which is Biden's you know phrase during the candidacy, he said, you have to heal the body. And that doesn't just mean address the covid epidemic, demonstrate the government can once again perform. It also means begin to heal the body in basic ways, provide health care to people who need it, provide greater income, wage growth for people who have been left behind. Begin to show that this system, which can look so remote for people out in, in, in the hinterlands, that it is actually working at the people's behest. I'll give you one tiny little anecdote and then uh, I'll stop this soliloquy. But I was on January 6th, I was at the Capitol reporting on this on this violence. And the thing that struck me most, Barry, was the number of people who told me that this was the first time that they had actually been to Washington was to come and storm the U.S. Capitol. What that told me was the degree to which they feel cut off from the government that serves in their name is extraordinary and is a source of tremendous vulnerability. The frightening thing, too, is that um, of the 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump, the great majority of them 
still believe that he was cheated. But as Bob Carr was pointing out to me before, a lot of those actually supported what happened on January the 6th. Yeah, I think there is a, a there is a degree of support. I would probably draw the the lines around a couple of subcultures within it. There were some people certainly who were emphatic believers in it. They thought that they were, you know, they were really participants in a delusion. They thought that the election had been stolen and they thought that they were going to overturn the results. It was it is in effect a sort of a cult-like mindset. Then there's another group who was kind of willing to go along with this fiction for 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 weeks after the election. And that includes, I'm afraid to say, some of the highest ranking elected officials in this country. The current uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, um, Lindsey Graham. I mean, the number of people who are really substantial figures in the Republican Party who went along with this emperor having no clothes thing is really the appalling fact because they were doing it for ambition and, and sort of, you know, short term political gain. But the fact that they didn't see the consequences is alarming. I would say then there's a, a one third group and the third group was actually shaken. You know, these are folks who became Republicans when it was a party that stood essentially for, you know, conservatism of a more recognizable variety. And they have looked upon what happened and they said, my God, what what hath we wrought, you know, really? And that's you see that in the data, because, yes, you're absolutely right. A lot of Trump people are still on board, but there are a, a some degree of uh, Republicans who have thought we've, we've got to significantly reimagine the party. I want to go back to uh, Joe Biden's uh, speech and job creation, the creation of jobs. His job plan was a key theme as well. But climate change, and and this um, I'm sure was music to the ears of uh, some people here in Australia, that he even tried to pitch climate change as part of his jobs plan. You know, it's funny. It's an idea that some people is intuitive and to others it was it really did land as a as a as an original concept to say that these things do not have to be in opposition to each other. You know, what's fascinating is that um, part of who he was speaking to in that speech last night was the cohort of Americans who will very soon represent the largest share of the electorate. And that, of course, are the millennials and Gen Z. The the average American, the median American today is 39 years old. Uh, I mean, exactly half of Joe Biden's age. And he knows that that's where the center of gravity is moving in politics. And of course, young people are extraordinarily concerned and focused on the threat of climate change and really on the abdication of responsibility of their of their forebears of the previous two generations in politics who allowed this to go not just unaddressed but actively fought against the science and so he is yeah one could argue uh, you know to take it out of slightly high-minded tones it's quite smart politics for him to recognize that this is where the future lies and enough of this nonsense about not acknowledging climate change it's over you know be done with it and, and get on with it and he's talking a huge expenditure, of course, so more than $2 trillion. In the past, United States presidents have tended to shy away from this concept of, of big government. He doesn't seem to do that. He just faces up to it and then argues basically why he thinks he can do it. That's true. And I will tell you, it is a massive political bet that he's making because it is nothing short of trying to turn uh, a culture of American politics that has really presided for pretty much since Ronald Reagan in the early 80s. That famous line that he had, it was one of his favorite lines to use, was that the the nine most fearful, uh, fearsome words in the English language are, I'm from the government uh, and I'm here to help. And that became, it really generated a culture of its own in America. I mean, I think a lot of us look upon it and say, when did this, this kind of ferocious anti-government 
really take hold. And it was during that period, it was during the 1980s, when, of course, Joe Biden was was in the Senate uh, in the opposite side. What he said last night, you know, to tell you where we are today, one of the first things that Biden and Kamala Harris did when they came into office was they announced what they called the Help is Here tour, where they went around the country talking about vaccine delivery by the government. That is, a, you know, almost an explicit rejection of this idea that the government can't be a source of, of aid and support in your life. And that, again, is something that speaks to this younger generation, because you have young people who have come of age at a time in which they have seen that a government that is essentially washing its hands of problems like gun massacres in schools, uh, like climate change, is not a government that they want to sustain any longer. And there is this underlying pressure for a change. But I'll state the obvious, which is Joe Biden did not strike very many people as the natural messenger for this a year or a year and a half ago, because he is not, let's face it, a radical, but he senses the moment. And I I had a conversation with President Obama last summer about this. I asked President Obama, I said, how did we go from this rather cautious centrist to this person who says, I want to be the most progressive president since FDR? And President Obama's answer was, it's not that Joe has changed. It's that the circumstances have changed so profoundly that he recognized his political nerve endings are pretty, pretty alert. And he recognized he needed to get with it. And it's not insincere to say that it was politics. He recognized that this moment is to called to him to be larger than what he thought he had. You know, you do wonder whether a 78 year old can be a real agent for change. But in your book, you, you point out that there were great hopes for Kennedy. But in the end, it was Lyndon Johnson who, who actually achieved more uh, than Kennedy. Exactly. I mean, that's one of the lessons that I think we get from this history is that you know, Kennedy, of course, was the personification of dynamism and youth. And he had all of the, uh, you know, the sense that he represented change in all ways. But he wasn't the one who could go in there and he wasn't the skilled practitioner in knife fighting with Capitol Hill and able to provide the right combination of persuasion and threatening behavior that would achieve what he wanted in Congress. Lyndon Johnson, curiously enough, has somewhat of a similar profile to Joe Biden. He was a person with a mixed record on race, after all. He was also somebody who ended up making great strides in the civil rights movement. But most of all, he was somebody who loved the cut and thrust of dealing with lawmakers. He was a proud former senator. And Joe Biden, to give you one interesting little you know, reflection of this, when he came over from the Senate as, as Barack Obama's vice president, Obama in that analogy is a bit of the Kennedy figure, Biden came over, but he held on to his, his locker in the gym at the Senate because he liked to be able to go back to the Senate and just chat with people and work them over. And Barack Obama, even though he was a senator for a couple of years, Hated it. Didn't like it. Didn't think it was really the job for him. Joe Biden would have happily spent another 36 years in the Senate if it was available. Mm-hmm. And when you consider all the money that now needs to be or will be spent, um, he also says trickle down economics doesn't work, which is something we don't hear a lot from uh, from world leaders. But it's been said out loud now by a United States president. But I guess the, the question is, is he prepared to do what seems to be necessary in those circumstances? And that is start to tax the wealthy. It is a it's the third rail of American politics. I mean, in some ways, you know, we will often talk in euphemisms about it, people paying their fair share. He was awfully explicit when he talks about it now, as he said last night. How is it that the 55 largest U.S. companies paid no federal income tax last year? Uh, 
Uh, how is it that 650 individuals last year during the pandemic increased their net worth by $1 trillion? And the answer, of course, is that the tax code has been, in so many ways, rewritten, particularly since that you know, mid of, middle of the 1980s, in a way that advantages people. It advantages wealth. It, 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 it doesn't tax wealth as it taxes uh, work. And that's the key thing. That, you know, in a way, I will borrow the language of one of my colleagues at, at CNN last night who said what, what you heard from Biden is that this is a positive populism. He's essentially trying to seize some of the energy that we've seen coming out of people like even the Trump campaign, the Bernie Sanders campaign, Elizabeth Warren. And he's trying to steer it in the way that he's saying we need to talk honestly about our tax policy or none of these other problems can be solved. Mm. Just in the time we have left, I just wanted to get a sense from you because it's such a big theme in your book about how tragedy has really shaped Joe Biden's life in, in more ways than, than I considered before I'd uh, picked up the book. Um, obviously, it, it started with that dreadful car accident when he was in his late 20s and he lost his wife and an infant daughter. Um, and then uh, Bo, he, his son, died uh, after that. Um, you talk about how, though, it had social consequences, that he, he kind of became withdrawn. And, and it made him a very different person to the Clintons, for example, who were very social um, in Washington around the United States. It, it did. It had a functional effect on him, and I think it also sort of altered his character in bits. The functional effect was after the death of his wife and his daughter in 1972, he was a single father, and that meant that he was going home every night, getting on the train and going back to Delaware. You know, it was an hour ride. And it was a small detail, but it meant that he was never at the same dinner party every night that everybody else was in the United States Senate. He was always just a little bit on the outer perimeter. And that, in a sense, confirmed some of the instincts that he came with, which was that he always had a bit of a sense of being an outsider. He hadn't gone to the best schools in the country. He, he sometimes likes to make fun of Bill Clinton for having what he, to his face, he calls him having a bit of Rhodes Scholar disease. And Joe Biden sort of takes pride in having been a little bit of, of a different background. The characterological thing, which I think is important, is that, you know, I started interviewing Joe Biden uh, before the death of his son, Beau. And you know, it continued up until 2020. Uh, Bo died in 2015. And somebody who worked uh, very closely with Biden framed it correctly to me. She said that really the death of Bo was such a punch in the gut because they were unusually close. And it was obviously the second tragedy in a life that has had more than its share. And that it changed him because it made him a bit of a more reflective person. It settled him in a sense. At this point in his life, he wasn't quite the lean and hungry figure he had been when he got into politics 30 or 40 years ago. He was a bit bumptious back then. He was, so he was sort of leaning forward a little too far. That period was over. You know, in a sense, he wasn't fighting for anything. He was just fighting to try to restore the decency and the honor to this business to which he had given his life, which is the idea that government can actually perhaps help people. Uh, and that's what drove him back into this. But, you know, to use the words of the person I was just mentioning, um, she said that it, it, in a sense, it, it, it kicked the last bit of arrogance out of him. You know, he had been the, the, the college athlete, the big man on campus, and it trailed him. That little, that little bit of it had trailed him all the way through that early run for president and so on. And the Joe Biden that you saw in 2019 and 2020, who got into this race, who really became almost a kind of pastoral figure in his, the way he talked to people. That was something that uh, you would not have seen from him 25 years ago. That's scar tissue that you see now. Yeah. 
And what was it about Joe Biden and the when he did so poorly in Iowa and New Hampshire, which would usually kill off uh, uh, most contests? What was it about him that brought him back into the game? And are we seeing something of that now? Yeah, actually, you know, there is a very clear there is a very clear answer to that, which is that he was saved by African American voters in the state of South Carolina, and. South Carolina, of course, is the primary that came after Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada. And he gets to South Carolina. And it's, this, it's an essential, a, a big change in the race because he was going from places where, you know, there are there's sort of a bit of a uh, they have a habit of liking to gravitate to the, the new block, Iowa and New Hampshire. So it takes pleasure in doing that. South Carolina, the 60 percent of the Democratic primary was African-American voters and particularly older voters. And as, as many people said to me in that period, voters in South Carolina, they said, look, it is one thing to not like Joe Biden that much because he doesn't seem like the hippest, newest guy around. We don't have the luxury, we meaning African-American voters in South Carolina who have suffered terribly because of the racism of Donald Trump over the last four years. We don't have the luxury of entertaining the idea that that man might get reelected. And so we're going to go with the person who we think has the most has the most electability. And we know him. You know, as they said, there was this one fateful day where an important congressman, Jim Clyburn, endorsed him and said, we know Joe. And more importantly, Joe knows us. And that was, to your point, I think, Barry, that really was a signal to a lot of Americans that we were at a moment of such gravity. It was so perilous that the idea that Trump could win again was just too much of a, a risk that people couldn't really afford to take. Well, Evan, we really appreciate your time this morning and your insights. It's a pity about COVID. Otherwise, I think you'd be here and you'd be spending the next hour or so in a, in a, in a queue signing books. Uh, <laughs> uh, but they'll have to buy the books without the, uh, without the autograph. Uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. I'll look forward to it. Thanks, Barry. Well, now to the panel, uh, Bob Carr and uh, Rosalind Dixon. And uh, Rosalind, you've spent uh, some time in Chicago, Harvard. I have indeed, Barry. Columbia. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's pick up on that uh, point about the challenges ahead for the United States. And this is what they have to deal with now in terms of trying to build some social and political cohesion off the back of, uh, off the back of an election where 75 million Americans voted for Trump and so many of them do believe that he was cheated. You know, I really agree with Evan, but you might also call it the Australian strategy, which is if you show people that government works for them, ideology tends to fall away. And it won't fall away with a hardcore subsection of, uh, you know, what is the new right in America, which is totally divorced from any reality. But I think the mainstream of America will come on board if they see government working for them, a response to the pandemic, to the economic uh, renovation that Evan says we need. I mean, I do think there is still a real sense that democracy is much more fragile in America than we ever thought. Uh, and if I was on uh, Biden's team, I'd be encouraging him to make a real concerted effort to renovate democracy in terms of election law, registration of voters and electoral integrity so that this can't happen again as easily. But I agree with Evan that the main thing is to show Americans that government works for them in a really meaningful way that affects their day-to-day -day life. Because it, it does, doesn't it, Bob, put real strain on, on a system when you experience, when America has the kind of experience it's had over the last four years and these constant attacks on some of the strongest pillars of democracy. Yeah, I, I think uh, we've got to discipline ourselves to look 
beyond these first two years because history teaches us that post-war presidents lose seats, they lose an average of 26 seats at their first midterm, at, at the midterm election. And that's when Clinton, for example, in 1994, faced a congressional takeover led by that charmer, Newt Gingrich, or Obama, 2010, two years after his election, facing the Tea Party storm into power in the House of Representatives and the Senate. So I, I, I think there's, there's so much that's exciting and positive about Biden's presidency. But even now, uh, 100 days in, I think it's clear that some of the great dreams, like being able to expand the size of the Supreme Court, being able to reform the filibuster, or being able to admit two new states and add four votes to the Democrat strength in the Senate are not going to be realised. And the jury's out on whether he can get four trillion in new spending through a House in which he's got such a, a modest majority and a Senate in which it's 50-50, depending on the mood that Joe Manchin's in and the casting vote of his vice president. And when I talk about the, the pressures on, on democracy versus autocracy, um, uh, President Xi in, in China has, has said, uh, forget trying to impose your democracy on the rest of the world because so many people in the United States don't have confidence in their own democracy. Um, they often say they're the great democracy of the world. Um, but even that concept was tested before Donald Trump. America shouldn't talk of itself as a democracy because there'd be people like me who'd point out the Electoral College, deliberately designed by the Founding Fathers to thwart democracy. I mean, no other, no other country, not Ireland, not France, with a directly elected president says, we're worried about who the voters might choose. We're going to have an Electoral College between the voters and the outcome to mediate the result. And no country that's got a, jury, a thoroughly gerrymandered house, the Democrats would have to get 5% more votes than the Republicans to have any chance of getting a majority in the House. Um, they've got to work that much harder. Um, and the, the Senate, with its bias to small states, all these features of the US Constitution were designed by the Founding Fathers to prevent it becoming a democracy. It's the oldest constitution in the world, of course. Um, but on top of that, on top of that, you've got voter suppression. You've got 28 state legislatures controlled by Republicans in which there are serious measures post the last election to make it harder for black voters and poor voters to vote. Now, that's not the action of a democracy. America's great achievement, political achievement, is to be a republic, a republic that survived the challenge of the Civil War, and to have comprehensive freedom of speech. So when, when America organises a conference of democracies, I would say that's a misnomer to have America presiding over a conference of democracies. What America could do convincingly is to say the First Amendment to our Constitution entrenched freedom of speech. We've been loyal to that. We celebrate it. Um, here's the challenge to the autocracies in the world. You have a First Amendment and you enforce it. That's the American achievement. But America, I mean, if these voter suppression laws pass in the state legislatures, as commentators in the New York Times and elsewhere have said, America becomes an oligarchy. 
where extraordinary efforts have been made, even I won't go into details, but just one detail, one of the voter suppression laws in one of the state legislatures criminalises giving water to voters queuing at a polling booth. So the instincts, you know, Stacey Abrams would be there trying to keep black voters in line, the, the three or four hour wait to get in to vote because the Republicans who control the state legislature don't allocate enough voting machines to black districts. So there's a queue of, that forces black voters to stand for three hours or so, longer in some, I can't believe some of the stories you hear about Texas and elsewhere. They've, they're attempting to criminalize the supply of bottles of drinking water to people queuing. Now, I'm sorry, my friends in America, but if, 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 that, if things like that pass, you don't celebrate being the world's leading democracy. You can celebrate having created a republic in which there's constitutionally entrenched, seriously revered freedom of expression. That's the American dream. Mm -hmm. I just wonder whether you, when you were Premier, whether you would have welcomed the idea of the states legislating over federal elections. It's just, the whole concept is, well, is mind-boggling. It, it means in the old days in Australia, the, the federal electoral boundaries in Queensland would have been crafted by Bjorki Peterson. The federal boundaries, the, the, the boundaries for House of Representatives yeah. seats. <laughs> Can I disagree with that, Barry? <laughs> I, I think it's very dangerous for us not to call America democracy. It is the most prominent but imperfect democracy in the world. And I actually think that leaders in Hungary and Venezuela and many countries around the world where democracy has been gutted from the inside play on this tactic. It's a tactic I call abusive borrowing where they say, see, America's imperfect, so we're just the same. I think we need to hold America up as the world's most prominent but imperfect democracy. Absolutely, but do you see now why it's so much harder as a result of the experiences of the last four years? The Abs countries you talk about, you know, Hungary, the Philippines, countries like this where, where democracy is under stress, and they look to the United States and what do they see? Well, I mean, Trump is, is really closer to Duterte than he is to a Democrat. But I do think that as we realign and look forward, I think it's important to reaffirm that America is highly imperfect, but it d does stand for a democratic ideal. And the sort of structural features that you know, Bob talks about which are the Electoral College and, and sort of voter suppression meets gerrymandering are terrible and they should be part of Biden's democratic constitutional agenda to address. But I think there's a danger, especially in a world where China is so savvy and so clearly trying to diminish the power of the democratic ideal to say, look, the US still stands for constrained, imperfect democracy and it's the world's most imperfect. But the Republican aspect of the American tradition does not uh, undermine it as a leading, uh, if highly imperfect, democracy that has to be perfected and I think restored. I mean, Evan talked about its deferred maintenance and I think if you want to talk about deferred maintenance, it's the airports, it's the roads, it's also the economic infrastructure. But there's restoration that has to happen and, and the Supreme Court's an interesting part of that story. But I, I think we need to hold on to it uh, as highly imperfect but an important lodestar uh, and that matters to our own, you know, geopolitical orientation to see it as part of our values and orientation. If, if you said to the French electors, we're going to amend our constitution because of the dangers of direct election, they have a two-stage presidential election, but the majority wins, we're going to have an electoral college, undemocratically comprised, mediating between the people's vote and who gets to occupy the Elysee Palace, there would be a second 1789. It would not be accepted. 
Um, the American Constitution, designed by the Founding Fathers very deliberately on the Roman model, had democratic, aristocratic or oligarchic and dictatorial elements designed on the, the old constitution of Rome. House of Representatives, the democratic element, the Senate, the aristocratic, and so on. Um, the result is this oldest constitution in the world is being stretched towards the oligarchic and voter suppression. I don't think Biden will get through the Congress that powerful, House Resolution that one, powerful yeah. um, HR1, the, the, giving America what we would describe as a Commonwealth Electoral Act. I don't think that'll get through. And, and these merry jurisdictions, Florida and Texas and Georgia, will say who gets to vote and under what circumstances. And they won't be voting on a Sunday, pre-poll voting on a Sunday, because that's when the black churches gather their congregations in great strength and what they've been doing on the Stacey Abrams model has been busing to the, to the polling places. So the response of the Republicans, there'll be no pre-poll voting on Sundays. Now that is, that is racist in its content and in its tone and profoundly undemocratic. Rosalind, when you look at the first uh, 100 days, I guess most of the focus is on COVID and the numbers there are good. Um, Joe Biden promised 100 million vaccinations at the first 100 days. He's delivered 200 million um, with a week to spare. But of course, those vaccinations didn't come out of a clear blue sky. You just can't whistle those up. There must have been some work done in advance. <laughs> well, I mean, Operation Warp Speed was initiated by the Trump administration, and it's probably the one good thing it did for America in, you know, the sort of lead up uh, to the Biden election and the innovation. I mean, I think we all are going to be the beneficiaries of scientists all around the world and especially in the United States working tirelessly to come up with just an amazing array of vaccines. We've obviously had real hiccups, problems, uh, but that doesn't take away from the fact that there has been enormous innovation and that was driven by investments from both uh, governments around the world and, you know, warp speed was pretty important. But, you know, we were saying uh, backstage politics is always like this. You know, you, you inherit both good fortune and bad fortune. I think... Um, Trump inherited some very, very good economic decision-making of the Biden uh, and Obama White House, and now Biden finally gets to inherit a huge mess, plus one really good decision that the Trump administration made, which was very significant investment in uh, vaccine development. And I do think it's worth stressing diversified vaccine development. You know, Generally, Trump was a crony capitalist uh, who tried to divert funds to his friends, uh, regardless of their competence. But Warp Speed did actually invest in a variety of different uh, modes of vaccine, you know, Johnson & Johnson versus Moderna, different vaccines, and, and it was diversified. And I think um, we're all going to be the beneficiaries of that. But for the most part, Biden has inherited a huge mess. And it is very fortunate, I think, that he served in the Obama administration because the people who've come in are overwhelmingly competent and experienced and they are not trying to learn the job, you know, socially distanced, working from home with an internet connection that only works sometimes. They actually have been in government before and the speed of what they've achieved is remarkable. They are showing that even men can multitask, right? You know, they've managed to deliver two, over 100 million vaccines and, you know, 
passed $1.9 million of COVID relief, and now there's this massively ambitious 10-year plan for tax reform and families and infrastructure investment, which, as you said, will total $4.1 trillion over 10 years. It's remarkable. So I think I would rate the first 100 days incredibly highly, and I would be slightly more optimistic than Bob about what the midterms might bring if this continues, which is, you know... Obama tried very hard to work with the other side of politics, and it didn't really work. He met intransigence, cynicism, and then Trump. And I think that Biden's learned from that. And instead of trying so hard to work with the Republicans, he's trying to bring together the divergent strands of the Democratic Party, which are the centrists and the progressives, and make something of that. I mean, one of the stories Evan tells in the book that I think is very powerful is AOC who is, you know, one of the most uh, dynamic faces of the hard left in the Democratic Party, basically said, I don't want to be in the same party as Joe Biden. She disowned him, and yet he brought her into the fold and said, I want you to help run my climate policy. He's a man who understands that he's got to create uh, cooperation with the Democratic Party, and I think it's incredibly energising to see that. And he's got some of the most hardened, you know, smart uh, centrists, uh, people like Janet Yellen who want to, I mean, this is for Australia, hugely relevant. She wants to see a global tax treaty where you can't go as a major economy below a certain tax rate. That would be a huge positive change. So she's got that on the one hand, and then you've got AOC who, you know, really is a democratic socialist trying to see a different climate future. So I think 9.95 out of 10, and I think the trajectory is upward, although on the vaccination People who haven't been vaccinated in, in the United States remain largely those Trump supporters, those 70 million, and I don't think it's going to be as easy to go from here. One of the better appointments up, to, up until now, I think, was John Kerry uh, on climate change. Uh, Bob, has the United States finally elected Al Gore? Yeah, he really well, does a, seem to be serious on this a, stuff. It's a beautiful way of putting it, and I, I think it's a, a valid interpretation. I, I think Biden believes that at his age, He's got to make a difference. There'll be no second chance. And the issue, he's smart enough to know that the issue he'll be judged on is this. It's this. This is the issue. And there are two, th two things I thought I'd Just highlight. Just before you do go on, yeah. why is that the issue in the United States and doesn't seem to be the case here? Well, I think, I think they've been, I think the Democrats under his leadership have been very smart. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal, which looked outrageous and overambitious, is effectively endorsed by Biden. She converted Biden, or rather, he was smart enough to see that this was the issue that would unite all strands of the Democratic Party, with the arguable exception of West Virginia Senator Joe, Joe Manchin III. But here, here are a couple of things he's done that haven't got attention on climate. He's re-evaluating the cost, the social cost of climate. And when they arrive at a higher figure than exists in American regulations and statutes at the present time, that will inform and shape a whole range of government decisions and feed in to any decision made, perhaps off in a second term, putting a price on carbon. That's a, a, that's a slow burn policy commitment. The second one, is just as cunning, just as targeted. He is required, he said this in his big climate statement on January um, uh, 27, he's required all government agencies and departments to identify hidden subsidies or half-hidden subsidies to carbon 
in their spending and to eliminate it from their budget bids for next year. Now, it'd be very, a very tough exercise in Canberra to say we're going to tell all our departments, you identify, you identify the subsidies that are going to oil and gas. I mean, this would cause a, a heart attack for uh, Andrew Liveris, the great apostle of uh, a methane future for the planet. Um, so these, these two policy measures are great, and only, only this week he's had success in the Senate in reinstating the regulations for the gas sector that had been wound back under Trump. So he's sincere and he's effective, but above all, what he does on climate is informed by a sense that at 78, this is what he'll be judged on and there's no time to waste. I think the essence of what they're doing on climate is to, to compress into the 2020s actions that the public and private sector, the public and private sectors might have been deferring to closer to 2050. And uh, John Podesta told me, he, he's advising, he advises Democrats on climate, that uh, very soon Kerry will recruit someone from the private sector whose job will be to go to the corporations who've made commitments for 2050 and say, that's fine, you had to do it, but what are you doing in the next few years while you're the CEO? Barry, I do think, though, it will have relevance for Australia and that the, you know, there, are, there is a faction of the coalition that are climate denialists, but the sensible resistance comes from the view that Australia is a small player and if we take you know, big uh, steps, we'll be punished without making much of a difference. Well, you can't say that anymore. If the, you know, some of the world's largest economies, Europe, obviously, and China and the US move, there's no sensible um, view that we shouldn't be not just following but doing more than our bit. So I, I think Biden's going to put significant pressure on the Morrison government's position on climate in ways that, uh, you know, the premise of your question, that there won't be movement in Australia may actually turn out to be, to be wrong in the medium term. We're going to take some questions now, a couple from, uh, from the libraries, and we can take two from the floor here, one on the left and one on the right. I'm talking about where the microphones are placed. Your politics are, <laughs> politics are up to you. Um, but we'll take the first, uh, the first question comes from, we, we must have chosen these questions based on, on, on the beauty of the, of the locations, I think. We've got one from the Huon Valley and, uh, and one from uh, Kiama. Uh, in New South Wales, the Huon Valley in, in southern Tasmania. The first question is that many people feel pressure from governments to develop the economy at all costs. What mechanisms can you offer to help people do that, to deal with that burden? Um, I think, Rosson, that goes to the question on climate change, for example. Um, it, it's one thing um, to argue, um, to accept the science around climate change and say that something has to be done about it. But it's a question then, isn't it, of educating people that it does come at a cost. Well, you know, I think it comes at a cost, but there's also huge gains. One of the things that Biden is doing is he's explaining and, and you know, following up with investments that there can be high-paid unionised green jobs that follow a green, you know, industry energy type sector. I think federal labour has really focused its attention in a welcome way on that. And I think we also, there's huge green growth potential, but we also have to acknowledge costs and we have to find ways of giving people who lose out, who may be in Tasmania or, or in the Hunter or in parts of Queensland, the assistance they need to transition to new jobs uh, and a different future. But I think there's both potential and costs and costs that we can address with good policies. And a question from Jeff from the Kiama Library. 
uh, for you, uh, Bob, I think it's quite appropriate. How will President Biden turn his attention to developing a relationship of peaceful coexistence with China? Well, I think it's a challenge because he signed up it, it seems to me he signed up to what I think is a hugely dangerous proposition for America. And that's to the DLP words, dominance, leadership, primacy. America must hang on to dominance, leadership and primacy in the world. Well, China's now, got the lead, China's now going to be the world's biggest economy, according to the second of the two available tests by the end of this decade. China, despite the shocks of COVID and other challenges, is in the process of taking 850 million people out of poverty and installing them in middle-income status. Now, that's a, a huge economic... It's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a huge economic magnet for the whole world, not least Southeast Asia. Is it within America's capacity to contain or restrict China's growth? And what will American nationalism do to contain Chinese nationalism? For Australians, it boils down to one issue. Are we going to join America in a war over Taiwan Strait? And I'm increasingly focused on this. The war talk of the last week has chilled me to the bone. Bob Menzies, who was our Prime Minister in the 1950s, formed the view that a war over Taiwan, this is back in the Cold War with Chiang Kai-shek there, and Eisenhower, later Kennedy. Menzies formed the view we would not go to war over the status of Taiwan. It's well documented. Alexander Downer gushed the truth in 2004 when on a visit to China. He said in respect of Taiwan, ANZUS, would not apply. Alexander Dana, 2004. What I find the most frightening thing about our country at the present time is the assumption being made, it was reflected in the rhetoric of the last week, our warriors, says Pazula, our warriors. Talk of warriors? Um, the drums of war are beating. Um, Dutton. No other country's talking like this, by the way. This does not go on in Japan or any of the ASEAN states or Canada or New Zealand, other Five A's nations, not in the Europe, among the Europeans. Um, the assumption being made in Canberra is to take the World War I recruiting song, 1915, Australia will be there. Australian people aren't being consulted. In the past, we've had what's known in diplomatic language as strategic ambiguity about what we would do in the event of a showdown between China and the US over Taiwan. No longer, no longer. We have edged, we've been edged by the orchestrated China panic since 2017 and by things the Chinese themselves have done to a position where it is being assumed, were there a showdown, we would be militarily committed. Hugh White says, that he thinks in this conflict, more than any other he can think of in the post-war period, the Cold War, the danger of nuclear weapons use is higher than it's ever been before. You imagine, you imagine if Chinese rockets sink American carriers or American rockets, etc. The resort to a nuclear weapons exchange 
is a real danger. And I just think we've got to be very careful about this American notion that somehow primacy can be measured and we may have to go to war to insist on American primacy. It is such a vague concept that creates a very dangerous and fraught geostrategic element. Good morning. Um, I'd like to know uh, how much you think the, Amer the problems on the American border and how much immigration policy are potentially undermining of the Biden agenda. I mean, I think one of the positive things is that Biden is committed to immigration reform and that means a path to citizenship for undocumented uh, persons in America and some degree of enforcement at the border without the very massive investment in a wall that sends all the wrong signals. They've already taken a lot of steps to reverse Trump-era immigration law. So the changes on um, sort of dreamers and Muslim immigration uh, from countries identified by Trump uh, lots of positive changes to open up America to a more sensible, uh, open, inclusive America. I do think you're right, though, that as we've seen in Australia, there is a tension between openness and the capacity of a state, both economically and politically, to deliver a generous welfare state. And that is not a conversation that America's begun to have. There's lots of things we hope that the Biden administration borrows from Australia and perhaps that's not one of them. So they have got some hard uh, conversations ahead, but I don't suspect that they will be first-term conversations. They will be ones that are only put front and centre if we're fortunate enough to see a continuation of democratic progressive control in Washington and therefore an opportunity to grapple with what are the limits of immigration reform and its intersection with this massive investment in economic infrastructure and inclusion. But it's a great question. Hi there. Um, I'm an American with Australian citizenship. Um, so I vote in both American and Australian elections. Uh, I did vote for Joe Biden, obviously. Um, but... Um, that law about uh, not allowing you to give food or water to, to voters in line, that actually did pass and become law in Georgia. Um, so what I'm kind of wondering is, um, Australia voting in, voting in Australia is great. I mean, perfect, right? The way we've run this system is just wonderful. I'm wondering if there's any way that Australia can reach out and help America yeah. fix the voting system. I mean, because... I mean, it just works here. Well, one of the things to remember is that the US is, I mean, this is proving why Bob was right all along, that, you know, it has state control of vote, voting in a way we have a Commonwealth system and yep. we have state system. So it's very, very hard to have a national solution. And that's what the House resolution in the US that's on the floor at the moment tries to do. HR1. You know, HR1. Very ambitious. S1 in the Senate, yeah. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of sensible things they can do learning from Australia. And they're starting to have those conversations, some funding for small parties, automatic voter registration yep. measures. Most of these measures around, you know, no water in line are probably unconstitutional. And one of the great things in America is, you know, people try on all sorts of weird laws, but most of the time it ends up in the courts and the courts do strike it down. So, you know, if you want to take a bet, don't blame me, but my bet was that's getting struck down and, and we, the court is still functioning well enough for that to be the case. So I think, you know, voter, automatic voter registration, uh, 
challenges to patently unreasonable voter suppression laws and attempts to get more uh, bipartisan districting. There's going to be a really interesting tactical question for the Democrats. You know, they can either play nice and try and get reform or they can go really hardball and say, well, we control more state houses now, so we're going to gerrymander more effectively than you. And once they've done that, then let's negotiate. And I suspect that the experience, as I said earlier, of seeing the attempts at bipartisanship in the Obama administration and how limited the response from Republicans was may mean that they actually play pretty hardball on gerrymandering as a way of building political support for proper electoral reform. I do of course, we've got, we've got an overseas development assistance program known as Foreign Aid, which has enabled us to extend assistance Send water to, to people in Georgia. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or, or help help failing states design an electoral system. Yes. And I would I would advocate that we we position a team uh, in our Washington embassy yes. to work with U.S. Legislate, le legislators on designing something akin to our Commonwealth Electoral Act. So, just as in Australia, from from uh, one border to the other, you have. 13 days after polling day in which your mailed ballot can reach the electoral office and be counted, uh, America would have national consistency. You wouldn't have litigation on the eve of an election over these things. So I, if I were foreign minister, I'd, I'd give AusAid the capacity to render such assistance as we, w as, as we would to uh, Somalia, for example. Yeah, or, uh, exactly. Good question, thank you. So, Bob, I think the message from that is that your job is not yet done. <laughs> you, you need to step up and save America. And Rosalind, if you find that he can't multitask, you'll better be ready to step in and, and give him a hand. <laughs> Please thank the panel. And thank you, everybody, for coming along in such large numbers. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.